You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual on Budget Week and All Energy Week is ITK analyst uh, David Leach. David, I trust you're well. I'm well, Giles. Unfortunately, I could only uh, stay at All Energy for one day, but uh, look, that's, that uh, uh, is a very, very busy and buzzy conference. Uh, I congratulate the organisers for the amount of uh, energy they've been able to get going uh, for, for that conference. But, and in addition, we've also um, added some bit of extra energy uh, with, a, with a great guest uh, this week. Yes, look, we're speaking to the head of Asia Pacific for Orsted, which is the world's biggest offshore wind developer. Um, a very interesting time in Australia, given all the talk about offshore wind. But look, before we get on to that interview, Dave, I'd just like to sort of tease out a little bit more from All Energy. Um, interesting, came in the same week as the uh, new Labor budget. I think some um, observer mentioned that climate change was mentioned 224 times in the budget documents, which uh, probably is 224 times more often than it was in the previous government. This whole change of mood and ambience must be lifting the spirits of people and I guess can um, explain some of the buzz at all energy. Uh, look, I think so. There was, I unfortunately, I was chairing a session on hydrogen and when you do that, of course, you can't just uh, wander around from all, all the concurrent sessions that are going. So uh, I, I wasn't able to catch up with all the other bits and pieces, but uh, certainly from what I saw, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Regarding hydrogen, just very briefly, what I learnt from uh, the five excellent speakers that I listened to today, if I came away with uh, two points, it's that uh, there's still a lot of work to do to uh, get both supply and demand to meet up, you know, because of economics and capabilities. And on the export front, it's really is Europe and particularly Germany that's leading leading the push and Japan from what I heard is contrary to what I might have believed is not really uh, going all that hard on hydrogen it's sort of doing it but it's uh, going through the motions as much as actually true believers there mm. look there's a lot more I could say but uh, I'll save it for another time maybe yeah, no, look, just, I've just got one quick question about that, though. I guess the big question is the transport of hydrogen. So does Europe want it bad enough that it will pay the extra cost of, um, of transporting it? Well, I was very interested in listening to Florence Lindhaus from the German Chamber of Commerce, who points out that Europe it tries to act together, but in fact there are actually all these different countries with their own uh, different agendas. And, you know, Germany itself, which is a big energy consumer, is not a very energy rich country once you take the coal away uh, and, 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 and so they are very keen on it and they're prepared to wear the transport uh, costs. Uh, somewhere like Italy might, prepare to, might prefer to get uh, their hydrogen from North Africa um, and, and Spain can probably produce its own. So there's a, there's a few different bits and pieces. Uh, transport is an issue. Uh, we've seen that ammonia, which got a big buzz before, as Bloomberg and others have sort of 
pointed to the disadvantages of using ammonia as a carrier. So look, the overall thing is that hydrogen is, is still tantalisingly close and yet not quite there. I also heard uh, FFI present today uh, and, and, and you know they've got a big job to decarbonise their own operations, which they're working hard on, a huge team as we've talked about before. Uh, they've gone into the front-end engineering and design at the Gibson Island Incitec uh, project with, where they want to convert uh, uh, to running on green hydrogen. But that is, a, uh, you know, a billions, billions plural. Uh, so there's a, you know, you've got to get a lot of ducks in a row to actually make that work as well. So hydrogen is still a journey to me. Offshore wind, on the other hand, is a proven technology. But I'm still not personally convinced that it's really in Victoria's best interest for the economics. Someone I was talking to uh, there who, who knows a lot about wind farms uh, suggests that onshore wind in Victoria can be done at, you know, at most 60% of, of the cost of offshore wind. And you need a lot of extra revenue and portfolio benefits to offset those uh, major cost disadvantages. Well, that is, of course, the big question, and it is one of the questions that we actually put to the head of Asia Pacific for Orsted, uh, Per Christensen, when we talked to him um, um, earlier this week. Um, Christensen is also in Melbourne for the um, All Energy Conference, and I'd imagine speaking to various state and possibly even federal ministers and um, some other developers. Anyway, David and I um, had a chat to um, Per Christensen, um, and um, this is how the interview went. Per Christensen, um, Head of Asia-Pacific for Orsted, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you very much, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here today. Well, you're in Melbourne, in Australia, well, specifically Melbourne this week for the All Energy Conference. Um, I understand there's been quite a few Orsted executives um, in Australia in recent months, and I guess the reason must be obvious because... Australian governments, and particularly the Victorian government, have become very, very interested in the offshore wind industry, and Victoria has gone so far as to declare a series of targets for 2032, 2035, 2040. What role does Orsted intend to play in this new sector? Well, you are indeed right, uh, Giles. Uh, we have, in fact, been monitoring the market for quite uh, many years and uh, have been hoping that uh, the Commonwealth government and the Victorian state government would launch uh, frameworks conducive for, for offshore wind. And uh, especially the last couple of years, uh, we've been, been down here several times. And uh, my colleagues have been here a number of times. And now I have the chance as the, the newly appointed president of Asia Pacific for Austin um, to go to Australia as one of my first business trips. Because indeed, we find that uh, the developments now within uh, renewables in general and particularly also on offshore wind are proving to become very interesting and we feel that with our experience and track record we will be able to play a strong role here in the, the renewable sector. So what sort of strategy are you taking here because we've seen a whole bunch of sort of acreage being mapped out by various players and some of them big and some of them small. Will you, look at, be, will you be looking to sort of look at what people's offerings are in terms of acreage and sites and stuff like that and partner them or do you have your own plans that you've been working on which you will unveil at some particular point? Well, we are looking into the options uh, right now, and I think uh, with a development plan, especially in the Gippsland area for, for offshore wind, that is what we are we are having our keen interests. And we are talking to a number of different stakeholders and partners here, 
and uh, we are just uh, about to have a establishing a permanent presence. So uh, we will we will develop this further as we go along uh, our cooperation with both communities and potential partners. So at this point in time, I'm not able to say anything specifically regarding that, um, other than that we really feel that now we are kicking off our efforts in Australia. I guess, though, that um, the fact that you are Orsted, you are the biggest player in, in the world in this industry, I mean, you must be thinking in terms of multi-gigawatt type investments um, in Australia, be it in Victoria or sort of in total around the country. Now, that is, that is indeed correct. Um, we have a lot of experience in the largest offshore wind projects in the world in the gigawatt class. And we believe and we have proven that in order to create the the benefits of scale and economics of scale. Uh, you need the uh, gigawatt scale offshore wind farms. That is what we have been able to execute so well in the past, both in, in Europe, in North America, and also currently undergoing in, in Asia. So we have the track record and experience in doing that. And we know that you need the gigawatt size in order to make these uh, farms really feasible and drive down the energy cost from the, from the wind coming from the offshore farms. Uh, per, it's um, thanks for joining the podcast. I guess I think you're reasonably new to Orsted. Is that correct? That is indeed correct. I joined Orsted just two and a half months ago, becoming our president of uh, Asia Pacific. And I guess the appointment of someone like you to the Asian uh, business indicates how important that Asian business must be in the offshore wind. I was looking at the Orsted presentation from the half yearly results and it's talking about I think as much as 6,000 megawatts to be auctioned uh, over the next 18 months in, in Taiwan and I have always seen uh, offshore wind in Japan as, it, uh, as incredibly important to Japan's future. Could you talk just a little bit about when you look at your Asian portfolio that you're, you're responsible for where you see the priorities and, and, and the most action and just talk to me a little bit about offshore wind in Asia. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my pleasure to do that. Well, we, uh, we kicked off our efforts in Asia in uh, 2016 and uh, got our first awards in Taiwan in 2018. And that's also where we have our Asia Pacific region headquarters and where we have the biggest staff because we are indeed uh, now constructing and about to commission uh, the largest offshore wind farm in Asia Pacific, uh, the Greater Changhua 1 and 2A. And uh, we are ready to launch further projects in Taiwan. So that is where we kicked it off in APAC and where we are most advanced. But at the same time, we have been developing our business in other countries in the region. We do have established presence in both Japan, Korea, and latest in Vietnam. And uh, that's also why we are now pleased to, um, to be able to say that now we are finally also coming to Australia and establish our presence here. And would you identify any one uh, country as been uh, having the most potential or, uh, for Orsted, I guess, or indeed for all offshore wind in general? Well, I think all of the countries that we are now looking seriously at and where we are established or about to establish ourselves, they are countries that have uh, announced ambitions within uh, within uh, becoming um, carbon carbon neutral in a foreseeable future. They want to develop their renewable energy sector. They want to 
go into the transition from the fossil fuels into green energy. And uh, besides that, these countries also have good uh, and conducive environments for offshore wind. The countries, they have uh, coastlines with, uh, with good winds for offshore. They also have uh, communities, businesses, huge populations along the shorelines. And these are the areas that are typically conducive for developing offshore wind projects. So together with, uh, with a good uh, political framework and also um, the, um, the geographical conditions for offshore wind, these are the markets that we find most uh, interesting and where we have established our presence. I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but again, looking at your, looking at Austin, it's plans and has announced to go from its current installed capacity of 13 gigawatts to almost 30 gigawatts uh, by, by 2030. Uh, um, you know, and spending US $50 billion. Uh, uh, do you have a view about how Austed will, will finance that? I mean, there's got to be a lot of, uh, sure, a lot of it will be done by debt because it will mostly, you will mostly have contracts for the output, but there'll also have to be a lot of equity. And I guess if I could sneak in a question about that, all around the world at the moment, offshore wind depends on like steel costs and things, and costs have been going up very steeply. Uh, I just wonder what that means for the offshore wind industry. So a lot of questions in there. <laughs> no, I think it is correct that uh, with the cost increases we see everywhere in the world these days, both for consumers and for businesses with steel prices going up, commodity prices going up, also interest rates going up around the world. Of course, this is, uh, I think, putting some challenges to everyone and we all have to, to deal with them in our in our different ways. So it is putting some upwards pressure on, on cost, I think that um, would be fair to say, and I think that's acknowledged by everyone. Now, this, of course, cannot uh, cannot keep going like this. So we expect it to be uh, a temporary thing with the extreme levels that we've seen in many parts of the world uh, now. But uh, but it is something that we are, we are, of course, addressing, and it is something that also is uh, is putting pressure on, on the companies and, uh, and the capital we have to invest. But, but we have a very robust uh, balance sheet in our in our company we have strong support from our our investors and we have a very good credit ratings so i think Ørsted remains in the strongest position to keep developing our offshore wind ambitions and uh, and we are indeed on track to uh, to achieve the 30 gigawatt in 2030 as you rightly pointed out I wonder if you're able to sort of say that uh, does any part of that 30 gigawatts um is that earmarked to come from australia well, it, it would be fantastic if uh, we could get the first offshore wind farms going, uh, for example, here in, in Victoria, um, just uh, before the turn of, of 2030. Um, we know that this would require the, uh, the frameworks to be in, in place rather quickly, but we also have the, the sense that this is what the, the Commonwealth government and Victoria's state government is working very hard on. So I would say that um, that it will be be tight, but I think uh, still it is possible with the right framework. And indeed, mm -hmm. uh, for me personally and for the APAC organization, we would indeed love uh, Australia to be part of this 30 gigawatt. So it sounds like you want to be part of one of the very first projects to um, to, to, to get commissioned, if that's possible. No, that that is indeed correct. Um, we are okay. we are here to really focus on. Uh, being part of the, the feasibility licenses that will um, hopefully soon be uh, launched. 
Right, right. The big question about offshore wind industry is how much is, going to co- is it going to cost? I mean, it all sounds very good. It's kind of established now in Europe. Um, big turbines, high capacity factors, taps into a wind source that um, you know um, may not be available on land. I mean, without putting in an early bid for an auction that has not yet been held, how do you sort of explain the cost differential for um, for offshore wind, say, in, in a place like Victoria? And, and, and I know that the project's are like eight to ten years away, but how should we be thinking about that and maybe you can give an example of what's happening in Asia and Europe just to sort of illustrate you know how the costs have come down and how they might compare with other competing technologies well I think that there are many things that are conducive for getting the the cost of offshore wind uh, down you can say firstly uh, when you are out at, at shore and uh, you are at the right locations you have a uh, pretty high winds and and relatively steady winds compared to so many places on land with, with both onshore and, and solar, and you can get a rather high capacity factors for this kind of renewables. And also, I think, uh, for example, here in, in, in Victoria, and we, we see that in Europe also, where you know older coal-fired plants are, are being shut down or are being planned to be shut down uh, near the, the busy areas along the coast, um, then it's, I think, a natural thing to develop offshore wind farms in, in those areas where it's a good replacement for the, the fossil fuels that has been, been dominating for, for so many years. And, uh, and also often along these coastlines, you have a lot of industries, you have a lot of uh, high populations. And these are some of the things that we've seen in Europe in the areas where we have developed it and where it had worked so well. And I think that is also exactly what you could see, for example, uh, in Victoria and in the, in the Gippsland area. Mm. What sort of framework, what, what do you need the governments to do? I mean, you talked about, I mean, they've always got to approve the, um, the renewable energy zones, which will set the, then set the pace or the, uh, allow those feasibility studies to be conducted. And they will be the first to be done in depth in Australia. They've talked about support for transmission links um, as part of the Rewiring the Nation program. These are presumably all good things. What else do you need the government to do to help make this sector viable? Well, I think what we have seen in both Europe and in the other parts of Asia where we are now is that uh, the frameworks that the government is launching, launching is, is rather important. So I think, first of all, uh, it's about getting going. We clearly see that in, in Taiwan where they had a strong ambition early on and they are now getting the largest offshore wind farms um, in production very soon. Um, I think it's, uh, it's also about um, setting the right framework in terms of the size of the wind parks. There's no doubt that uh, in order to make really uh, efficiencies of scale here and to drive down the electricity cost, you need gigawatt scale projects. We have seen countries where that has not been the case versus countries where this has been the case. And it's very clear that that scale is very important uh, because it's uh, it's a huge endeavor to build these large wind farms out at sea. And uh, a lot of the costs will not go up proportionally to to the size of the the wind farms. So it is very important that we have scale here. And then I think also the frameworks in terms of, uh, for example, um, local contents, how you interact with local communities, etc. These are are very important. But I would like to add here also that uh, Ørsted is a a long-term operator. We are are not here to just develop, build, and then uh, sell it off. Um, Our business model is to, to build own operate the wind farms for for many many years and i think we have proven the the value of this and and with this business model we can we can keep costs in check and uh, and drive very 
cost efficiency wind farms. Pair, uh, an, another big topic in the offshore wind industry is fixed versus floating offshore wind. Uh, most of the wind that we've seen developed, if not all, all of it has been fixed so far. And yet for some countries like Japan, it seems that floating offshore wind will be very important as it will be for parts of the potential Australian industry, uh, for instance, in New South Wales. Uh, how is Orsted looking at, at, uh, at floating offshore wind or will your attention remain on fixed for the time being? No, I think that's a very good uh, question, David. And uh, I think floating um, is a technology that is uh, maturing just like a normal fixed bottom uh, was uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I think it's a technology that, uh, as with any other technology, will develop into something that becomes economically feasible. I think it opens up a whole new uh, range of opportunities uh, in areas where we did not believe we could install offshore wind in the past. Uh, and obviously, uh, being able to go uh, the higher, uh, larger sea depths, uh, you will be able to, to go to areas where, where there's uh, very good winds and, uh, and where the potentially also is, uh, is, uh, is, is the grid and the, the businesses and populations needed to, to offtake the grid. So I think it opens up a whole new array of opportunities, but I, but I also think it's something that will still take a, a while to mature, but certainly Orsted is, is looking into this as well. And, uh, and we see it as a clear path of uh, the future in getting into a, a net zero um, environment. And we've seen a big development in the uh, downs in, in the cost and the PPA. I think that your the latest Orsted uh, uh, PPA was uh, for £37 sterling in 2012 uh, currency, which has to be adjusted to 2022. And I think that works out to 80-something dollars Australian when, when I did the arithmetic. Um, I guess as you look at it, how do, you, how do you see the potential for further cost reductions as we go forward? And can you point to something that will help those cost reductions and of course we have to get over the, the cost increases in the first uh in the first instance yeah i think the the cost increases um for sure uh, is something that we have to overcome in in the shorter term um, but uh, we also do believe that with a large scale uh, gigawatt scale offshore wind farms and also now uh, with the turbine sizes we are seeing where we've seen a, a constant development um, that is helping to to drive down the cost. Um, obviously, there's probably a limit to how how large you can make the individual turbines, but the more synergies you can do get in terms of large uh, scale gigawatt offshore wind farms um, that we have seen is a, is a huge driver in getting to to the cost level where where it is competitive with other kinds of uh, of renewable energy. I'm actually just wondering about the size of turbines. It was the question I was going to ask. I mean, you mentioned that there could be a limit to the size. I mean, some of the projects, I mean, it's very early stage in Australia, um, are talking about 20 megawatt tur turbines. I mean, is that the sort of the size that you imagine that would be used in Australian waters? And um, how big can they get? I mean, um, why is there a limit? <laughs> Yeah, it's a good question, and I think it's one that everybody is asking themselves in this industry, including the, the OEMs, the turbine manufacturers. And I think just recently, uh, some of the leading turbine manufacturers have been out in the press with some comments uh, around this, um, because there are also other 
complications when you uh, continue to increase the size of the turbines in terms of, uh, of transportation, manufacture, installation, etc., where, where that also has a, a cost impact and you need very large vessels to install them. So I think the industry is, uh, is kind of uh, trying to come to terms with how, what is the optimal size of the, with the wind turbines. And I'm not saying we have reached that limit yet. I think the, we, what we will see is that the, currently the largest one going into to the wind farms in the coming years will be in the 14, 15 megawatt range. And I, I know some of the turbine manufacturers are looking at, at 20 megawatt, but I, but I think the turbine manufacturers are really also looking into um, when is it that, that we, we need to, to focus on other things that just size. I'm not, I'm not able to say exactly uh, what the limit is, but I think we are seeing uh, the constraints now in terms of, of getting very large vessels to install these huge wind turbines. Mm. I've got a couple of quick questions before I'm just about wrapped up and I don't know whether Dave will have some others. Just briefly, are there any other states in Australia that you're looking at apart from Victoria? Well, we will definitely be uh, be following the development all over Australia. Um, offshore is, of course, the main focus area for, for us. That, but we also know that Australia is a country where there can be opportunities within uh, onshore solar and, and power to X. Um, our immediate focus area, I believe, will be offshore and uh, especially here in, in the state of Victoria. But, uh, but I can say that longer term, uh, we have a keen interest in, in following all kinds of renewables in Australia and uh, and it would be great if we can kind of use uh, this uh, offshore wind here in this state to as a kind of stepping stone into other kind of renewables uh, because the opportunities in Australia are clearly vast and we we fully fully recognize that power to x um, leads my next question into hydrogen um, what sort of opportunities are you thinking about in those terms in in Australia and maybe you can also just sort of describe how you're thinking of hydrogen or green hydrogen in in a global sense well, we clearly think that this is something that uh, not only is is going to happen but is happening right now uh, and a lot of companies are are looking into how to do this best I think um, green fuels is something that we need to make the transition to a fully fully sustainable green world. Uh, and that is the vision uh, for us to, to create a world that runs entirely on green energy. And, and that can only be done if uh, we find ways to have uh, have uh, fuels that are made out of, of green electricity. And uh, we will not be able to have uh, everything battery powered. So you will need uh, hydrogen for industrial purposes. You will need e-methanol. You will need e-ammonia for a number of different purposes. And that's also why um, we have no doubt that power to x um, is a very important part of the green transition. And that's also why in the, the organization that we launched recently, we have a, a dedicated business area looking into power to x and not only looking into it, actually having announced several specific partnerships that we are we are now running that uh, that we hope we can take uh, to to many parts of the world in the in the longer term. Yeah, uh, my last question is just about the supply chain, and I guess it goes to local assembly uh, as well. I won't call it manufacturing. I mean, all the major wind turbine manufacturers, especially well, the European ones, are unprofitable, and the largest of them was Vestas, was even cash flow negative last time I looked, which is clearly completely unsustainable. They've all set up, as far as I know, blade manufacturing uh in, in countries where they thought the wind would be like India and so on. Uh, you know, 
I guess my question really is, firstly, I think about vertical integration. If Vestas is going to do be the main player in these big offshore wind, why not actually own the manufacturer? Maybe you just don't want to own the unprofitable bit. Uh, but secondly, what about shifting the blade manufacturer and even the gearboxes and things uh, to, to, into, into Australia, the local content? How, how is Vestas thinking about local content from a global perspective as well as just Australia? Almost <laughs> Yeah, no, no worries. I know what you mean. No, uh, I think it's a very good question. And it is one of the things that um, we have been, uh, been dealing with in the other parts of the world and, and not least also here in asia pacific with uh, within some countries very uh could say rigid local content um, requirements and i think it's important to say that at Oster we are very focused on working with all stakeholders and local communities whether it's the fisheries the local communities whether it's creating apprenticeships whether it's um, working with local businesses governments and also working with local suppliers what we think is important, though, is that you set it up in, a, in an efficient manner, meaning that not all countries can be equally good at doing everything. And I think there are many, many parts of a wind farm that could be made in Australia. I have no doubts about that, or for that matter, in the other countries where we are engaged. But it doesn't mean that every component has to be partly local manufactured in a, in a country. I think it almost goes without saying that that's not the most efficient way of doing things. So whether a country is uh, specialized in, in heavy steel structures, whether it's in the electronics parts, in transformers, some will be where the OEMs have their blade factories, but, but not all. Um, transmission systems, cables, there are so many parts in an offshore wind farm. And in order to drive down the cost, we just together have to find ways to see how do we best develop a, a local supply chain that is suitable for making the, the components that go into a wind farm in a cost competitive way. And that is what we unfortunately have seen has not been the case everywhere. And then it's very difficult to drive down the cost. So we believe that you can both drive down the cost and have the optimal supply chain, including a lot of local suppliers. And that we have clearly seen in, in most countries. You just have to design the framework in an efficient way. And, uh, and we'll be very keen on, on helping in doing that, um, ultimately to the benefit of, of the country and the local communities. Well, fantastic. Well, look, Per Christensen, uh, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. And we look forward to hearing um, more news from Orsted in the, uh, in the very short term, I hope. Indeed, it's been a very big pleasure to be here. It's great to be in Australia. Uh, we are very happy to, uh, to be here and to be part of the green transition in the country. So thanks a lot for having me today. It's highly appreciated. Uh, that was Per Christensen, the head of Asia Pacific for Orsted, the, uh, the world's biggest offshore wind developer. Well, I guess, David, that completes, um, they haven't actually announced which project they're going to be involved in. It's interesting to see that they are actually um, teamed up with Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners on a five series of five gigawatts of projects in Denmark. Um, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, of course, the majority shareholder in Star of the South, which is uh, regarded as the most advanced project in Australia. Um, I guess, though, that completes the full set. I mean, just about every major player now has declared its interest in the uh, Australian market. As you say, still lots of questions to be answered.
Uh, yes, and heads of agreement are not the same thing as, as uh, purchase power agreements. Look, there are two things that stood out to me from that interview, just very briefly. One is the size of the projects, which we talked about a lot. For me, size means risk in a lot of ways. Once you start getting into gigawatt projects, which have cost capital cost of $3 billion, and you need 15 or 20 years of revenue certainty, uh, then, then there's more risk because it takes the time that it takes to, to get and the fact that the assumptions that you sign up for are not necessarily the conditions you'll face at the end. The second one is the supply chain, which we've talked about a lot, and it's going to get more and more important. I mean, there's such a lot of renewable energy to be built in Australia and around the rest of the world out to 2030. I mean, there is... And, and yet the, our power oil wind turbine manufacturers are not making any money, not generating any cash. Local content rules might mean they have to make a lot of stuff in, say, India, if they want to do business there, or China, if they want to do business there, or Taiwan, if they want to do business there. And now Australia, they're going to have to be making lots of stuff. It, 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 that has to be sorted out. And we want local content. Of course we do. We want to do things efficiently. But in the end, in the long run, it's better it, in the long run if you, you forget the fact that you've done the manufacturing for five years and you've got to live with the electricity price for 20 or 30 years. Well, one of the things that has um, impeded the rollout of renewables has been transmission. Um, of course, this is an issue which has been addressed by the Integrated System Plan, the document from AEMO, um, Labor's Rewiring the Nation program. And I guess we saw last week the first stages of that rolled out, at least for Tasmania and Victoria. Um, I guess that had to be done because Victoria is entering their sort of uh, caretaker period ahead of their election. But fascinating to see. In the last podcast last week, David, we talked about social licence and um, you held a session in Sydney um, about that um, and it was fascinating to see the decision or the announcement by Energy Co New South Wales which is kind of in control of rolling out the transmission arrangements the renewable energy zones um, in, in that state talking about the proposals they're going to have for landowners basically a doubling um, of the fixed charge, not including the easement fees, but this is sort of the the the, the, the one-off um, fee to two hundred thousand dollars a kilometre for hosts of high voltage transmission lines. So that's three hundred and thirty kilovolts, five hundred kilovolts um, spread over twenty years. So it kind of means ten thousand dollars a year per kilometre of high voltage transmission line. And look, they, they were pretty upfront um, about saying that really um, their attention has been very focused given the pushback against some of the transmission line proposals that we've seen around the place in HumeLink and particularly in VNI West where there's been some particularly um, strong protests including farmers sort of, you know, sort of carving out signs in their fields, you know, piss off Osnet and, and things like that. Um, they really want to try and, um, and um, avoid those controversies and I guess the best way they can do it is by paying the landowners more money. What's your assessment of that, David? I think you've said it pretty well, Giles. Uh, my uh, from conversations I've had with the and at a seminar, the Australian Institute of Energy uh, ran, which which I'm on the Sydney committee of, uh, with landowners transmission affected, is that the, is that the the opposition was partly that they just didn't f f in for tran electricity transmission. It might be different for coal seam gas wells, where but. They, the, the transmission the farmers just didn't think they were being paid enough money. Um, and the process had been handled poorly and they were looking at how much money wind farm developers were getting. So it wasn't really about the environment, 
per se. I mean, you can farm under a transmission line. If you can put up with the look of it, you could make an argument that the environmental damage is, is really only visual, if I can put it that way. But they still didn't think they were being paid properly. Uh, and in fact, I was told that one of the biggest opponents down there in that Tumut area to the transmission line was really keen to have a wind farm on his property just the same, you know. So uh, it was a lot about money. It is about money and money will smooth the way. I understand that money is not everything. I fully and completely understand that. Uh, and you could also argue that the process could still be improved a lot. So this is only going to directly uh, impacted landowners. Whereas we've already learnt from the uh, wind farm, uh, from solar farms and from coal seam gas that you really have to spread the money round a bit. You have to give it to landowners next door to the transmission tower, even if the easement's not on their property directly, they still should get some. It might be closer, they might be more visually affected. So this is a process that, that just can't be solved with a single stroke of the pen. But I personally am so in favour of getting this transmission done, that's my point of view, that I don't mind if a few mistakes, I'd rather pay a bit more now and get it done. Well, certainly the cost is going to total about $800 million for New South Wales alone, and I guess if that's translated across the whole of the national electricity market, and it's hard to imagine that the other states won't be um, forced to follow in New South Wales' footsteps, and that's probably going to cost about um, $2 billion, I well, guess. Well, Charles, I, I, I do think it's important to understand that that is a cost spread out over 20 years. It's like saying your electricity bill over 20 years is going to add up to X. Where, where you really mostly focus on the annual cost. If you look at the net present value of it, uh, uh, the New South Wales government said it's about 250 million. Uh, so, and I think that really is a better way uh, to think about it and relative to even the biodiversity cost, uh, which is of equally questionable value, not because I'm anti the environment, but because of the way biodiversity works of over a billion dollars on HumeLink, it still doesn't look like that big a deal to me. But uh, we've also saw, to me, the biggest deal of all the announcements I've seen in the past couple of weeks is the Victorian government going back into the owning electricity assets. And the South Australian government, I see, has been reported today as also considering the same thing. For me, I, I think this is a very um, debatable course of action. If you're um, AGL or Origin, notwithstanding that they brought it on themselves, you might ask, why bother? If you, and if you're selling CWP and all of a sudden you're trying to sell it to someone who thinks they might have to compete with the Victorian government or the South Australian government, I mean, the value of that asset could arguably have just gone down some, some amount uh, just, just with that uh, announcement. I guess the one mitigating part of um, their proposal is that they're not proposing to own the assets entirely. They're looking at being partial investors. I mean, you can not, in, I, I guess in the most benign way to look at it is that they're kind of sort of setting this up to be some sort of state version of the um, Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which just takes, you know, equity stakes and funding positions and a whole bunch of sort of wind and solar farms and, and, and battery storage installations. So maybe that's sort of part of their thinking um, to grease the wheels of that investment. and. They want to be involved in four and a half gigawatts out of probably what's going to be like about 10, 15, 20 gigawatts that's going to be built over the next uh, 10, 15 years. So that's probably the most benign um, uh, view of it. However, we just don't know the details. So until we actually see them, we won't see them until well after the election, I'd imagine. I agree with that, Giles. And, 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 uh, but I will say, you know, my objection is, is not about whether it makes electricity prices go up or down or it's more or less efficient. My objection to this thing has always been from the very beginning that you can't have two football teams and then the, the, the referee is playing for one of the teams. You know what I mean? It's just... Uh... <laughs>
<laughs> we had to get back to football somehow, but um, um, I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to talk about the uh, Premier League matches. Um, we did talk about prices. Now, this has obviously emerged as one of the big themes coming out of the um, the budget. I mean, the budget, basically, someone in the budget um, obviously just looked at the forward prices and came up with the conclusion that... Um, that uh, bills will be going up sort of 30% and then 20% the next year. That's become the big focus. Um, you have not yet seen this document, but I've received an embargoed copy of the um, Quarterly Energy Dynamics report, the September quarter from AEMO, where it discusses this point. It points out high prices, um, despite sort of, you know, numerous renewables records over the September quarter. And it makes it absolutely clear what it thinks is the cause of these electricity prices. It's not shortfalls of supply, it's not soaring demand, it's just basically the high cost of coal and the extremely high cost of gas. And basically when gas was responsible for setting the prices, the average price was over $330 a megawatt hour and one quarter of the prices in the whole of September quarter were priced Price trading periods were priced at more than $300 a megawatt hour. It's really quite an extraordinary situation. David, I guess my question to you is, laborers, federal labor is talking about intervening in the market, but I mean, really, I mean, is there anything that they could possibly do to actually reduce the price of gas? I mean, one of the things yeah, that the they can does... do things to control prices, but uh, you cannot control price and supply at the same time. You can really only control one. <laughs> And uh, I've often said that markets actually work given enough time. Uh, and, you know, when prices were very low, we didn't hear any complaints that the producers weren't doing very well. And when prices are high, it's only ever consumers that politicians care about. They never care about producers. Now, I will just observe that the reason gas prices are high globally is basically obviously because Europe's been trying to wean itself off Russian gas. And very briefly, a day or two ago, I saw that gas prices in Europe went negative, right? Because at the, we're getting to the end of summer now. It's expected to be a warm winter in Europe and the gas storage must be, by definition, pretty much full. So all of a sudden, all these people who've been taking gas, like China's been taking gas from Australia, in my opinion, and the United States, and shipping it off to Europe and, and, and clipping the ticket along the way very handsomely, and nothing wrong with that. But all of a sudden, Europe's got enough right for the time being. So the prices will eventually fix themselves up. Uh, and the market should be left to itself. And if, if part of the problem goes back to the fact that we never built enough supply, even though we always knew, new supply, even though we always knew that the coal generators were going to start closing uh, early. And, and that, that, I don't want to get into the history of it, but that's a problem. So, so my opinion is that the government shouldn't do anything. As a matter of fact, I personally think high gas prices are a wonderful thing because they'll encourage people to get away from gas to an extent. The only downside might be if we find some more gas as, uh, because it also encourages new, new capacity. I just quickly wanted to mention, Giles, talking too much late at night, too much pl on travel on the plane. Uh, Martin Green winning the very prestigious uh, Millennium Technology Prize. Uh, isn't it wonderful to have an Aussie doing so well? Uh, I, I wanted to absolutely mention no, fully fully deserved to Professor Martin Green from University of New South Wales. Um, absolute um, the father of the solar industry and a highly respected man who is still 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 after all these years still very heavily involved in um, improving the efficiency of solar modules and um, you know sort of new techniques, particularly with the perk. And solar modules, which he's been so instrumental in doing. So, yeah, congratulations. And of course, it's not just what he himself personally has done in terms of science, but it's also the 
uh, school and culture and team, uh, at, you know, the, so that Australians continue to do well. I notice AEMO separately has got a new uh, grid connection simulation tool going, which I think could be uh, quite something to keep an eye on when I find out some more about it. And finally, the other thing I wanted to mention, I'm keeping a close eye on Sun Cable, uh, which also presented at All Energy, uh, which I think is uh, possibly for me the most interesting single project going on in Australia. It's possible you can have a lot of debates about whether it'll get up or it won't get up, uh, but I just think it's such a, a, an important project. We, we we need to mention it on this show every now and then. <laughs> Absolutely, yes, and maybe it's time to get David Griffin or somebody else back onto this uh, show to discuss the latest developments, although I'm still thinking they're crunching the numbers and, um, and definitely the finance. Anyway, David, look, I think that's probably a bit of a wrap for this week. It's going to be fascinating to see um, what the state energy ministers come up with in the next monthly meeting, which is going to be later on this week, and um, no doubt we'll hear more announcements um, coming forward. Anyway, thank you, David. Um, thanks to all the listeners out there. I'm very sorry that I couldn't make it to the All Energy Conference, but um, circumstances dictated that I couldn't do it. And um, thanks, of course, also to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of Energy Insiders in a week's time. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.